Well, good morning. I am excited to be with you this morning. For any of you who don't know me, and I do see some people that I don't recognize, uh, my name is Phil. I'm one of two of the pastors here at Richfield Bible Church. Currently, of course, Pastor Brian is working through his series in the book of Romans, and I'm working through a series in the book of Judges. Uh, But for the next two weeks, given uh, the season that it is in our culture, uh, we are both going to be taking a break from those series to look at texts related to Christmas. And so today, as you see from the screen, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And I want to say to the kids who are in here, uh, there is a coloring sheet for this sermon, a really nice picture of the main character in this sermon. And so Mr. David back at the sound table has those. And if you don't have one, he would be glad to get you one. So just raise your hand or have your parents go grab that. And I hope that is a help to you this morning as you try to follow along with us. Luke 19, let's start reading in verse 1. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now this is probably, I would guess, a very familiar story, probably to all of us, maybe one of the most familiar stories in the whole of the Bible. Perhaps would you even know the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. It's a great song. Okay, we will not sing it this morning. Well, the story of Zacchaeus begins with Jesus in the city of Jericho. Okay, and just before this story, we read some of Luke 18, but Luke 18 finishes with the story of how Jesus was on his way to Jericho And he encountered a blind beggar and healed him. He believed in Jesus and Jesus healed him. And now Jesus is in the city. He's entered the city of Jericho and he is is passing through. But before the the story continues to follow Jesus through the city, uh, the, the narrator, Luke, kind of steps back and wants to tell us more about a certain man who lives in Jericho. And we have to know these things about him or we're not going to understand what comes next. So this man's name is Zacchaeus, and we know a couple of important things. Number one, we know he was a chief tax collector, which means, number two, that Zacchaeus was incredibly rich. But number three, surprisingly, Zacchaeus is very interested in Jesus, at least to see him, find out what he looks like, who he is, etc. And number four, Zacchaeus is very short. Now, in our last sermon from the book of Judges, we met a left-handed character. His name was Ehud, and we observed that the Bible rarely comments on a person's 
physical characteristics unless it's going to be significant. Okay? And you can think of any, any physical characteristic you know of somebody in the Bible, and that characteristic is essential or very important to the story that you know about them. And so one of the first things we learn about Zacchaeus is that he is short. And so we know this is going to be significant. Actually, it's going to be a problem. Okay? Zacchaeus has the same problem that you have today if you are shorter. Okay? It is hard or harder for short people to see the focus of a crowd, right? It's hard for shorter people to see the focus of a crowd. And the obvious solution, of course, is to get above the crowd, to get a better vantage point. And so this very rich man runs down the street where he guesses the crowd is going to pass, climbs a tree uh, on that route, and there he waits for Jesus sitting in a tree. A very rich man sitting in a tree. And sure enough, just as he guessed, the crowd came that way. And when the crowd passes by the tree that Zacchaeus has climbed, Jesus stops, he looks up, and he says these words, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Jesus knew Zacchaeus, and Jesus' plan required that he go to Zacchaeus' house. He said, I must stay there. He already has a plan, and it requires that he go to Zacchaeus' house. Now, there's no reason to believe that Zacchaeus expected this to happen, but he was sure excited about it. It says that he hurried down. This rich man scrambles down out of a tree. I don't know when the last time was that you climbed a tree, but I'm guessing if you're an adult, it was a long time ago. So here's this rich man scrambling down out of a tree, and it says he received Jesus joyfully. But Zacchaeus wasn't the only one who was surprised by what Jesus did that day on the streets of Jericho. Zacchaeus was surprised, and he was so happy about this opportunity to talk and be with Jesus. But on the other hand, the people of the crowd were also surprised. But they were so upset that Jesus would go to Zacchaeus' home. Why would the crowd be upset? Okay, verse 7. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You see, Zacchaeus was famous in Jericho. He was famous. But he was famous for the wrong reason. Everybody knew Zacchaeus was so rich, and everyone knew that it was their money that had made Zacchaeus so rich. It was their money that filled his coffers. You see, Zacchaeus was a rich man because he used his position as a tax collector to extort money from his fellow Jews, not only for Rome and the taxes that were due them, but also for himself. And this was no secret. Zacchaeus made no attempt to deny this or hide this. Everyone knew what kind of person Zacchaeus was. Zacchaeus was a sinner and the worst kind. Zacchaeus was the kind of person whose sin is so prominent that it was the first thing or it would be the first thing that you would think of when you think of them. And for the crowd, his famous sin meant that nobody who was any good would have anything to do with this kind of a man. And so to the crowd, Jesus' willingness to, to go and be with Zacchaeus says a lot about Jesus, and it's not, it's not good. And so all of them, not just the religious leaders, if there were any there, but all of the crowd starts grumbling about what Jesus is doing, and no doubt Jesus is becoming a disappointment to them. Apparently they, apparently they were wrong about Jesus. Apparently Jesus is no better than the hated Zacchaeus. Otherwise, why would he go to such a horrible person's house? Okay. 
But then Zacchaeus did something the crowd never expected. Not in a million years. Somewhere in his time with Jesus, and it seems like perhaps the crowd was able to witness this, the way that it's described there. Zacchaeus stands up and he says these words, verse 8. He says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Well, that's unexpected. That's a surprise. And we've all read this story before, so we know it's coming. But can you imagine reading the story not knowing that that is about to happen? That is the last thing that you would expect Zacchaeus to say. I wish we could have been there to see what the faces in the crowd looked like. Or to be there on the people's faces later that week when Zacchaeus showed up on their door and handed them a bag of money to return what he had stolen times four. Zacchaeus commits to using half of his wealth to give to the poor, and he commits the other half of his wealth to repaying people the money he stole from them as taxes. But as we already said, he's not just going to make it even and repay what he took. He's going to do it times four. You think about this, this idea of of paying people back with that kind of interest, uh, this idea yesterday to Zacchaeus would have been unthinkable. He never would have thought this was a good idea yesterday. He would not even have entertained it. In fact, most likely, we're guessing here, but I wouldn't be surprised if that morning he had already been out extorting people and stealing money from them as a tax collector. And here he is, suddenly and dramatically changing as he stands in front of this crowd talking to Jesus. So what happened? Zacchaeus met Jesus, and Jesus saved him. Jesus replaced his covetous heart so that no longer was money something to be hoarded and and taken from others. Rather, money was now something to to be used to help those who were in need. Zacchaeus is, he's repenting, he's, he's turning away from his sin, and he's turning to Jesus. And by God's grace, he is producing the fruits of repentance. And his response is all the more amazing when we think about the story that Tim read for us early to, earlier today. Just before this, we read the story about another rich man who came to Jesus in, in the last chapter, and that rich man, unlike Zacchaeus, had actually kept, in his mind, all the commandments from his youth up. The crowd would have expected Jesus to go to that man's house because he had been living in obedience to God's law. But when Jesus commanded him to sell all that he had, that rich man, and give it to the poor, he refused. Jesus' command exposed this man's covetous heart, and he would not repent. That rich man did not turn to Jesus to be rescued from his sin. The cost to follow Jesus was just too high. So we've just had this rich man in the last chapter commanded by Christ to give up everything, and he turns away from Jesus. And now in this chapter, we have Zacchaeus, who repents of his sin as Jesus saves him. Remember what Jesus said of the other rich man. He said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. No doubt if you had asked the crowd, which of these two men is going to turn to Jesus? The rich man, who was obedient from his youth up, or Zacchaeus, they all would have said, ah, it would be impossible for Zacchaeus ever to turn to Jesus. Not a chance. And yet with God, all things are possible. Jesus saved Zacchaeus from his sin. Verse 9. Jesus says, today 
salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. In other words, Jesus is, he's announcing that what Zacchaeus has promised to do shows that he has been saved. Salvation has come to this house, or better yet, Jesus has brought salvation to the house of Zacchaeus, this sinner. Zacchaeus was not saved because of what he promised to do. He hadn't done anything yet, okay? So, so what he, he is going to do for the poor can hardly, hardly be the basis of his salvation. Rather, his promises of generosity demonstrate the remarkable change that Jesus had begun within him. Jesus has begun to save him. Now, I don't want to pass over Jesus' words here without making a simple but important observation about what he says. He says, salvation has come to this house. Okay. What does that tell us about the way that Jesus saves? Jesus was saved the very, I'm sorry, Zacchaeus was saved the very day that he turned to Jesus. Those who come to Jesus, Jesus in faith, Jesus saves today. There's no waiting period. There's no trial period. There's no probationary period. Jesus doesn't run a background check. Okay? Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to clean up his life, and they would talk again the next time he came through Jericho, and they'd reevaluate whether or not salvation was the next best thing for him. Okay? No, if you turn from your sin, Jesus saves today. Even if it feels like your sins are piled high, just like Zacchaeus, if you come to Jesus in faith, he will save you today. He will rescue you from your sin and the punishment that it justly deserves. Now look again at verse 9. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Now I want to admit at the front, this is a difficult phrase. Since he also is a son of Abraham. It may not sound like a difficult phrase, it is, okay? Wondering what Jesus means by that has been difficult for me this week. There is one other time that Jesus talks like this, and that is in Luke 13. So I'm going to ask you to turn over there with me. In Luke 13, there's one other time where Jesus talks about a person and says, they are a son of Abraham, or talks about them similar to that. So in Luke 13, Jesus is in a synagogue, and he heals a woman who has had an 18-year disability. And as a result of that 18-year disability, uh, this has brought her to the point that she was bent over and could not stand up. Jesus heals her there in the synagogue on that day, and this angers, this makes the rulers of the synagogue angry at Jesus. Why is that? Well, because, this is the age-old reason, it was the Sabbath, okay? And according to the ruler of the synagogue, there are six weeks or six days in the week when this could have been taken care of. This woman should come back later. Okay. Look at Luke 13, verse 15. This is how Jesus responds. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, verse 15, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, and as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. So what happened here? Okay, Jesus points out to his opponents that, that his opponents feel compelled to water their animals 
on the Sabbath day. And if they feel so compelled, then they ought to understand and affirm the compulsion that Jesus feels as the Messiah, the promised one. They ought to understand the compulsion he feels and the need that drives him to deliver a daughter of Abraham from her suffering under Satan's power. Okay. So if you think about that back in Luke 19, we already know that the crowd is, is upset that Jesus has gone to Zacchaeus' home because he is a sinner. And so when Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house or Zacchaeus' house, since he also is a son of Abraham, he's explaining why he would do such a thing as bring salvation to this person's house. Why did he choose Zacchaeus? And Jesus' answer is, why not? Why not? Zacchaeus is one of God's covenant people to whom God had given these amazing covenants and promises through their father Abraham. What could make more sense than the promised Messiah rescuing a son of Abraham from sin. In fact, this is the very reason that Jesus came. Verse 10. He rescued Zacchaeus, verse 10, for because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now as you read verse 10, it probably raises a lot of questions in your mind. Why does Jesus suddenly start talking about someone else. Okay, read that again. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Who is the Son of Man? And why does Jesus start talking about him? Okay, these are good questions. The name or title Son of Man appears many times in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But where does it come from? Okay, and what does it mean? Well, earlier today, we read a long portion from the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel's vision... Daniel saw one like a son of man. Daniel saw a, a, um, a human figure in the heavens in his vision. And he, that one like a son of man, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." So that's where probably where the idea of the, the title of the Son of Man, that, that character, comes from. But then in the Gospels, for example, in Luke 5.24, Jesus tells us that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. This Son of Man character is divine. And then in John 5.27, Jesus says that the Son of Man is given authority to judge the whole world. And then in Luke 6.5, Jesus says that the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. And then finally, in John 9, 35 to 37, Jesus says this to a man born blind who is now healed. Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And then Jesus says to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And so Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. Jesus is the one, like the Son of Man, to whom is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here in Luke chapter 19, why does he do that? What does that mean? And Jesus says, I am the promised, heavenly, authoritative, divine human figure who rules and judges and forgives. I am the one that Daniel saw in the vision in the clouds of heaven. But that means an amazing thing. That means that the Son of Man 
is here. He's not in heaven. He's here on earth. God has come in flesh. God has actually become like a son of man. In fact, he even came into the world the way everyone else does. And this is the miracle we celebrate at Christmas. The miracle of the virgin birth is is an important part of this, but the miracle of Christmas is that God became human and came into this world the same way everyone else does through a mother's womb. God the Son became human, and not just human, but human in a fallen world, a world corrupted by sin. Though he was God, Jesus took on the weaknesses of being human. He was hungry, he was tired, he was sick. All the weaknesses except one, except sin. And why do all this? Why go to such great lengths? Well, Jesus told us in verse 10. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to be the Son of Man, to seek and to save the lost. And that idea of one who would seek and save the lost comes from another Old Testament passage. So Son of Man probably comes from Daniel chapter 7. This idea of seeking and saving the lost comes from another Old Testament text, and that is Ezekiel 34. So go ahead and turn there with me as well, and we'll look at that together. Ezekiel 34. This one statement that Jesus says is reflecting several, multiple Old Testament passages. Son of Man from Daniel 9, excuse me, Daniel 7. And then this idea of seeking and saving the lost comes from Ezekiel 34. In this passage, the Lord speaks against the leaders of his people because they have ruled unjustly, They've ruled harshly and selfishly. Israel's leaders have ruled Israel like shepherds who care nothing for the sheep. And so look at verse 2. Verse 2. The Lord says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? Verse 3. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. He says, you are terrible shepherds. You are the worst shepherds. So what will God do? Verse 11. God says, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Verse 16. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice, verse 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken." So in Ezekiel 34, God promises that that he and his Messiah will shepherd his people. They will rescue the lost. They will care for them and lead them justly, gently, and for their good. And so as we think back to Luke 19, Jesus is combining all of these ideas in his statement that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus, the Son of Man, has come to shepherd the people of God. And that starts with going after and rescuing the lost sheep of Israel. But that raises another question, at least in my mind it does. And that question is, who are the lost? Okay, Who are the lost? And at first, I think our, our 
knee-jerk reaction answer to that. Well, the lost are the Israelites who are like Zacchaeus, right? The famous sinners, the outcasts of society. Okay, those are the lost people. And yet there are other contexts where the crowd opposes Jesus' mercy, just like they do here. Uh, and in those contexts, it's clear the scope of those who need to repent is actually far greater than just the worst among them. For example, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 5, Jesus, again, is spending time with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees and their scribes, no surprise, they're appalled that Jesus would do this, and they grumble about what he's doing, and they ask him, why do you do this? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus famously makes this statement. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, who are the sinners that need to repent? Certainly, the tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is eating with. But does that mean that the Pharisees, who are standing there talking to him, is Jesus saying that the Pharisees are righteous and therefore don't need to repent? Is Jesus saying that there's this category of righteous people who don't actually need him to rescue them? Okay, obviously not. Jesus is saying, sick people need a doctor. So why wouldn't I help them? Okay, that's what he's saying. What the Pharisees struggle to realize is that they need a doctor too. And just like the famous sinners, they need to respond to Jesus with repentance. Now in this text, Jesus does not point out their sin, but he does later in Luke chapter 11. He says to the Pharisees, he says, you are full of greed and wickedness. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So just as Jesus was not saying that Pharisees and others are, are so righteous and don't need his salvation. So also here in this story, Jesus is not saying that Pharisees and others are not lost and don't need him to be their shepherd king. Everyone needs Jesus to rescue them from sin. Everyone is lost. All have sinned. Everyone needs to repent and turn to Jesus and be reconciled to their shepherd These stories where Jesus reaches out to the the sinners or the worst of society, these stories are not teaching that those people are the only ones who need Jesus. Rather, these stories teach, among other things, that no one who repents and turns to Christ is beyond the reach of his saving grace, not even the worst of society. In fact, Jesus says in the book of Luke that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I don't know how much you know about God, how much you've read the Bible, but you can learn a lot about God today from looking at Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God to us. And one of the things we see about God today through Jesus is that God is a God who pursues sinners and rescues them. He, God, takes the initiative in salvation, not sinners. Lost sheep don't look for their shepherd. Lost sheep don't look for their shepherd. A good shepherd goes out to find them. Zacchaeus just wanted to see Jesus, but Jesus had come to Jericho and he needed to stay at Zacchaeus' house because that was his plan, to save Zacchaeus. Jesus is so different from the leaders of God's people who manipulated and extorted them. 
In fact, later in the book of, life, book of Luke, Jesus is going to give up his very life for the lost. He's just the kind of leader that everyone needs and wants. Jesus will die on the cross, not for his own sin, but to satisfy God's wrath against the sin of the lost. And then God will raise him from the dead and exalt him to the right hand of his Father's throne, the Son of Man reigning in the heavens. Unless you be disappointed this morning because you wish that this good news was not just for Israel, and I've got more good news for you, because Jesus' ministry was primarily focused on Israel. But the book of Luke ends with these words from Jesus. Jesus commands his followers that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus wants to seek and to save the lost of all nations so that, Daniel 7, so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him in his kingdom. Now, as we finish today, there are a few applications I want to make sure we don't miss from this text. First, being found by Jesus is always worth celebrating. If you are trusting in Christ today as your only hope for rescue from sin and death, then Jesus found you. And that is always a reason to rejoice every single day. You look back in the preceding chapters of Luke, you'll see the famous lost parables, the lost coin, the lost son. It is always a reason to rejoice. Second, we all ought to rejoice this morning that Jesus doesn't exclude sinners from his salvation. The crowd who walked with Jesus that day and saw him going into Zacchaeus' house missed this opportunity. They wanted to exclude Zacchaeus. Sin separates us from God. But sin, even great sin, does not mean that we are ineligible for salvation through Jesus. In the spirit of John Newton, who said, you may be a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. In fact, if Christ excluded from salvation all sinners, he would have no one to save. Your sin does not exclude you from God's salvation. What will exclude you is if you reject Jesus. And just as you rejoice in how your sin does not exclude you from salvation, God's salvation, we should also rejoice when we see others receiving God's grace and mercy. And usually this is an easy one, to be excited about other people receiving God's grace and mercy. But maybe like the crowd towards Zacchaeus, maybe there is someone who has hurt you so deeply that you would be bothered if you learned that they had turned to Jesus for salvation. Sometimes in extreme cases, people hurt so deeply, people are hurt so deeply that our relationships with them are affected for the rest of our lives. But God's glory in his mercy towards sinners is always a cause for God's people to rejoice. If we grumble about God glorifying himself by showing mercy to a sinner who has hurt us, that is like saying that their sin against us is worse than their sin against God. God's glory in his mercy towards sinners is always a cause for God's people to rejoice. Third, I hope this text strengthens our confidence in God's power to rescue our friends, our family, and others 
for whom that seems impossible. We're coming up to the holidays. We're going to be with our friends and family more, perhaps. Maybe we'll see our neighbors more. The story of Zacchaeus should teach us never to say or to think they will never respond to the gospel. Jesus said what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we saw the impossible happen in the life of Zacchaeus. Fourth, I hope this text strengthens our confidence in Christ's power to keep changing the hearts of those he has rescued. If Christ's power can deal with Zacchaeus' covetous heart, then he can deal with your anger, your lust, your selfishness, your dishonesty, your pride, and your fear. We turn once again to Christ today, ask him to forgive you and to keep saving you, to keep changing your heart so that it's more and more like his own. That's what he does. He's the son of man who came to seek and to save the lost. This is the mission of the baby who was born in a manger. And so this morning, in just a few moments, we're going to have an opportunity to glorify our shepherd king, the now exalted son of man. The son of God became also the son of man, God in flesh, and he he humbled himself to the grave, to the cross for our sin. This table before us contains the bread and the cup. These represent the real body that Jesus took for himself. Jesus really was a human. He didn't just look like it. He really was fully God and fully man. The cup represents his, his blood. The bread represents his body. Torn for us through the suffering on the cross. But God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand of his throne, accepting his sacrifice for our sins. And so this table is for sinners, and it's only for sinners. If you're a righteous person who doesn't need a physician, this table is not for you. The righteous people who don't need a doctor are not welcome at this table. Only the sick, only those who recognize that they are lost, only those who know they need a shepherd king like Jesus desperately. And for all those who will turn to Jesus, he promises to forgive our sin and to reconcile us to himself forever. And so this morning, if if you have turned from your sin to Christ and you have testified of that faith in the waters of believer's baptism, then we would would encourage you to eat and drink together with us this morning. If that's not true about you, perhaps you're just visiting today or just don't know much about Jesus or never been baptized, we we are so glad that you're here with us. We really are. We love having you here today. But we ask that you would just observe as we eat and drink at this table this morning. So let's pray. And then we will receive the cup and the bread. And as these things come your way, please hold on to them so we can all eat and drink together as those who have been united to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the story of Zacchaeus and the reminders in it of your mercy and grace toward sinners. Lord, when we are honest with ourselves, we recognize that we are, we are sinners. We are desperately in need of a physician, a doctor. We need a shepherd king like Jesus. Thank you for how you have suffered on the cross, though having never sinned yourself, how you suffered for us and exhausted all of God's wrath against our sin. And then how the Lord raised you from the dead 
so that those who trust in you can be forgiven of our sins and have hope of of being with you forever, reconciled to you fully in the new creation. Thank you for the forgiveness and life with you that we already now have through Christ. And we pray that now as we, we eat and drink at the table that you've prepared for us, that the reminders of these things, the reminders of your grace to us would cause our hearts to rejoice in the midst of whatever you have placed in our lives. Cause us always to find joy in what you have done for us and how you found us in spite of our sin. And now we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.